Welcome to Badass Digital Nomads, where we're pushing the boundaries of remote work and travel, all while staying grounded with a little bit of old school philosophy, self-development, and business advice from our guests. You know, critics of remote work say that you need meetings and face-to-face interaction in order to get things done. But we all know that communication and community are two of the most important factors for success in a location-independent lifestyle. So every time you listen to an episode of this or any podcast that you find value in, I challenge you to share the wealth. Take a moment to think of one person in your professional or personal network who might benefit from listening in. Then share it with them and tell them why. Doing this will help you absorb and apply the info that most resonated with you from the episode, putting it into practice in your own life while delivering value to someone you care about. And with that, let's get on with today's show. Hi guys, it is Tuesday. So you know what that means. We have an episode of Badass Digital Nomads here on Digital Nomad TV. If you're here live, I'm just going to go ahead and open up the chat. So feel free to ask your questions and participate as much as desired. And if you're coming over from Instagram, then holla. Katie has an amazing Instagram profile, by the way. If you like traveling, then check her out, The Traveling Light on Instagram. And then maybe you can get some more questions for our discussion today. Hi to Walt and Tech Lords and anyone else streaming into the chat here. Make sure to get your questions ready and we will answer those as we go along or at the end. So, okay, we'll do the intro here. So welcome everybody to another episode of Badass Digital Nomads that we are recording live. I am in Florida and Katie is in rural Italy. We're going to find out more about that and what she's doing there. Katie McNulty is an Australian nomadic writer, photographer, branding consultant, and she's based in Paris and also all over the world. So Katie has spent a month or more in 16 different countries over the past six years and She's not just your average digital nomad because she goes deep. She likes to stay in each place for a long time, slow travel, and get up close and personal with each of the local cultures and the people there. She has lived in 24 different houses in the past six years as well, and she's documenting her entire journey on her blog called The Traveling Light, which is a collection of unique and light-filled places, people, and personal journal entries. Katie and I met because she watched some of my YouTube videos on traveling with Kristen and sent me a message on Instagram because she looked me up there, as all of you should be doing. (laughs) And it turned out that I was already following her. So yes, we have a mutual girl crush going on on social media because that's the world we live in today. And fast forward to now, she is a guest on the podcast because she's a badass. So anyway, Katie was recently in India. So I was totally stalking her Instagram as she traveled through India because I've never been there. Her home base is in Paris and she's spending the summer in Italy. So I don't say this very often, but Katie, how can we have your life? Welcome to the show. 
No, come on. You know, it's not as glamorous as it looks. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but it has to be slightly glamorous because Paris is such an expensive digital nomad destination or for anybody. But we'll, okay, we'll start at the beginning. Where are you from in Australia? And give us some insight into what your life was like pre-nomad. So six years ago, or even go farther back if you want. Okay, so I am from Brisbane in Australia, which is on the East Coast, subtropical climate. And I lived there until I was about 25. And I worked in an office. I worked for the Tourism Board of Brisbane. Uh, in marketing there. And yeah, I kind of liked my life a lot, but I traveled a lot growing up with my family. So I always sort of knew I was going to go traveling a lot. And I always actually wanted to live in Paris. So I studied French through school and university and sort of wanted to get into travel and stuff because that's the only thing I was really interested in. So yeah, my life pre-travel was a pretty normal life. I went to the office every day, nine to five. And then actually when I was 25, I moved to London and got another office job there working for an airline. And like that was great. But I think after about a year and a half doing that, I just felt like I needed a break. And so I quit, quit my job, quit my lease, my visa ran out. And I was like, all right, I'm just gonna travel for a while. And so I did that for about a year and then came back to Australia. And while I was traveling, I'd picked up a bit of freelance work. And so I got back to Australia and I was like, well, I could move to Paris now, or I could kind of just keep traveling and keep working. So I was like, well, why not just do that? And I I was like, I'll just do that for a little while. And then I guess it just kept going on and on. And I kind of was slowly moving to Paris, actually, like, you know, I'd spend one month in one year there, and then I'd spend like two months and then three months and then more and more and more time there. And and yeah, I've ended up spending like a full year there last year. No, the year before. (laughs) I can't believe that you left Paris and I arrive in two weeks and you speak French and I need a translator. You don't need a translator in French, in Paris, sorry. In France, you do, not in Paris. (laughs) You're fine. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I've I've been there once before, but it still would be more fun if you were there. So what was your nine to five job? In Australia? It was working in the marketing team of the tourism board for Brisbane, Australia. And then in London, I worked in the marketing team for an airline. So I studied marketing and yeah, travel was the thing I was really interested in. So I was really lucky to get into that and to kind of also then start working in the travel industry. That also sort of helped me get the ideas for my blog or gave me the fire to want to do something a bit different in the travel world. Yeah, I love that you actually studied marketing and then worked in your field. I think that's pretty rare, actually. I think a lot of people graduate and then they're like, okay, now what? So it's cool to see that you've funneled that skill set into this sixth year of being a digital nomad. And I think a lot of people who are location independent can relate to the idea or even expats or people who live in different countries the idea of like just going for one month or three months or six months or one year and then never coming back or, you know, or staying, you know, extending it. So yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that. And so at what point, like this is something that people struggle with a lot. At what point during your travel, so 
maybe people quit their jobs and they go on sabbatical and they start traveling, but then eventually they're going to run out of money. So how did you make that switch from backpacker to digital nomad? Well, the funny thing is, is even when I started traveling, I had this, I was doing some freelance work for a friend of mine, like freelance branding, marketing work. So that was kind of helping me pay for my travels. Like even when I first started doing it, like six years ago after I left London, but it was like, it was just like for a few months or so. And then the funny thing is I kind of, I have a family home that I can go to quite a bit in Italy here and then also in Australia. So I had kind of like these two touch points, like, okay, I've run out of money. (laughs) Can I either come home and live back at home for a while? And save some money, or can I like go and do that in Italy? So like that was. I reiterate, really how helpful. do we get your life? Okay. <laughs> but I think how did I make the switch? It was kind of just like when I first had the idea, like okay, mom, dad, I had this idea. I'm going to travel. I'm not going to get a job. Actually, I'm going to start traveling and keep doing this like freelance work online and just see if I run out of money. And they were like, well, you know, the worst that can happen is you run out of money. We'll lend you the plane fare to come back home. Okay. And you can get a job. So I was like, okay, if that's the worst that can happen, that's, that's not that scary. That's, that's okay. And then after I actually took that leap to just go and sort of travel and try and work at the same time, that first client that I had, it turned into part-time work. And she was like, you can do it remotely. I didn't know anything about digital nomads back then. I didn't know it was a thing. Maybe it wasn't it wasn't that big then and so I was like okay cool I'm just just gonna do this then and you know try to keep costs low and I think when I first started doing it too I had a lot of little touch points where I could go and stay with a friend you know like my first little digital nomad experience was going to stay in San Francisco and it was from a really good school friend with a really good school friend she had a spare room she was like you can just stay here for free So it was like, I had these little things where I know I can go and stay on that person's couch in New York, or I know I can, you know, I had those, it wasn't like I was having to pay rent every month because that's the thing that kills you. Oh yeah. It doesn't kill you, but it's like, that's the scary thing that is like, yeah, that's hard to manage. (laughs) So if I think think when I was starting out, having those rent-free months was like really, really helpful. People have been asking me for more than 10 years, like, how do you travel so much? And The biggest reason first and has kind of continued to be that way is because I didn't have the monthly rent expense and monthly utilities and the car payment and the insurance and all of the other stuff. So it's like when you eliminate that, that's already thousands of dollars a month. And when you channel those base expenses into travel and long-term travel and slow travel, then it's like it just covers your cost of living wherever you go because you're not on vacation. You can't buy anything because you have a suitcase that's a limited <laughs> size. So it's like, it's actually, that's what I always say to people is like, I mean, I have the same question. I've had it over and over. And I say, well, I mean, if you want it to be traveling can just be living. Like it doesn't have to be going out for cocktails every day, you know, like, and I yeah. think too, like when I started out doing this, I spent a lot more time in Southeast Asia, which is really cheap, as you know. Yeah. And for people who don't have a family home in Italy and Australia to go back to, I'm just joking with you. No, really like the worst case scenario, even if you don't have family at all and you're out in the world by yourself doing your thing, 
Like the worst thing that happens is that you have to get like a personal loan or put on your credit card a one-way flight back and get a regular job. But I mean, there's couch surfing websites, there's house sitting websites, like there's so many ways to live rent free now. And like literally the worst case scenario is the status quo, which is like crazy because everyone is living the status quo. And like somehow that's the worst case scenario if things don't work out. No, it's not that bad. <laughs> it's not that yeah. it's not that bad of a, of a backup plan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like regular life is still there waiting for you anytime. <laughs> and so now that things have evolved over the years, is your blog your main source of income or what is kind of like your client base look like? Because I've surveyed a lot of my digital nomad friends and Facebook groups and the majority of them became digital nomads by freelancing and offering their services to other people. So it's kind of, there are a lot of pros and cons to freelancing. The pros being, you know, being able to work less hours and charge more for your time in many cases, just being able to have control over who you work for and what kind of work you do. But then there are also downsides like some of the freelancing sites can really take big fees out of the money that you get. And then you can end up competing on price base compared to the value of your service because the market is really crowded. So how do you find your clients and like, what does your kind of mix of work look like right now? Well, the funny thing is, I think a lot of my clients are just through people I've met through either like at home or traveling or in Paris or whatever. Most of my clients are actually through like the network and the relationships I've formed like with people. But I think that the reason that they trust me or want to work with me is because of the blog, because what I actually do is brand strategy, marketing, writing and photography. And so the blog has kind of become like a showcase for all of that, which is like not something I planned at all. You know, it's just like a passion project. And so that's sort of become the showcase for all of my work. And I kind of just get clients, yeah, through my personal network and just by chance, I guess. <laughs> but I think well, the well, reason they believe me, yeah, is the blog. They can see, they like the way that I write. They like my aesthetic. They like the way I communicate and they want me to help them apply that to their brand. Yeah, the blog, has, it's really beautiful and visually attractive and it has a great aesthetic. So I can see how that would become somewhat of a portfolio for you. So anyone who has skills in that area, why keep all of your beautiful photos and work to yourself when you can publish them online and maybe attract some clients? But I had a freelancing expert in my Facebook group on a live stream last year, and he said the same thing. Sometimes people want to, or they expect to hear a more complicated answer, but a lot of the time, your client base comes from your personal network or these days from the internet. So whether it's people that you meet in real life or people that you cross paths with online, like the way that we did. Apparently, I liked your blog too because I started following you before I knew you. <laughs> but yeah, that's the way it can be. It doesn't have to be really super complicated. It could just be uh, reaching out to your personal network and that's great that you've been able to do that for so many years. And I think like something else that seems to be kind of common with most of the clients that I work with is I think they also see something in me that they want to do for themselves. So like wanting to kind of do some work that is really important to you and meaningful to you. 
and that is maybe not what you've done before or is a bit unique or different. And so sort of helping, yeah, really small businesses or one-person businesses to figure out how they're going to communicate themselves, how they're going to brand themselves, how they're going to present themselves to the world and, and almost giving people a bit of a pep talk and being a bit of a cheerleader, like, yeah, you can do it because I've done it and it's not that hard. Like, this is not that, that much of a crazy idea, you know? Like, that's kind of always becomes a part of the work that I do. Yeah, that's actually in a roundabout way how I started doing this podcast because one of the easiest ways to transition into doing something that you want is to model after the people who already have it or who are already doing it. And so that's why I love sharing so many stories from people that I come across in my own travels or that I meet online or that I meet through mutual friends because it just makes it so much more accessible when it comes from somebody that we can relate to on that level. So, you know, you can look at Richard Branson and be like, wow, he's a great entrepreneur, but he's also Sir Richard Branson. Yeah, he's you know, like he's a hundred knights ahead of me. Like, how can he help me? He's too far yeah, from where I, I am. Airlines <laughs> and islands. So it's not relatable. It's like, wow, yeah, I guess I could be the next Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or whatever. But one of my friends who has become a client and also working for me now, and she's now a digital nomad. She said during this course that I'm doing right now, which is the digital nomad challenge, like a jump start to becoming a digital nomad. She said one of the things that triggered her into actually taking the first step of quitting her job and working remotely was that she realized that you don't have to be a super millionaire entrepreneur or a broke backpacker, that there's this middle ground that most of us fit into where maybe at first we're really bootstrapping and sleeping on couches. And in my case, I was sleeping in like $2 a night cabinas in Costa Rica. But, you know, eventually maybe you're not staying at the Burj Hotel in Dubai, but maybe you just live a comfortable life where you get to travel when you want, where you want, and you have all your basic needs met and you're making a decent living and it doesn't necessarily have to be that measure of success is like, do you own Necker Island? Yes or no? <laughs> yeah. And I think the cool thing after a while is that you can kind of start to understand how to make a, like a regular base income. So you can, I don't know, you just kind of learn how to manage your money a little bit better and you have more regular work. So you can kind of be like, oh, okay, I, I can step up to the next level. I can rent an actual apartment. <laughs> like. Yeah. And living below your means. I mean, my dad just retired and he was saying how cool it is to get social security payments. And I was like, that's what we're all kind of going for here is creating our own retirement income, but using it now. So creating different income streams and like ways of making money so that we don't have to be always working 40, 50 hours a week. Yeah. And like setting up channels of income that actually kind of like feed you not just in money, but energetically, you know, like setting up channels of income for work that you actually want to do. And that makes you happy. And that is sustainable for you. And you're not going to like burn out on, you know, like that's incredible to me that we, you know, yeah. we have the opportunity to work doing things that we like doing and that, you know, we enjoy and that make us happier and better as well as giving us money, you know? <laughs> Yeah, there have been definitely times that 
I didn't feel like working. And I've always lived below my means because that's just something that my grandparents and my parents taught me to do. And so there have been months that were really good. And obviously I spent like a fraction of my income. And then there are months when, you know, I would rather not take on a new client and just have more time off to like rest and recuperate or something else. And I just was okay with making less money or just relying on passive income and like spending some of my savings because that just fit well with the quality of life that I wanted. And that's okay too. It's like, you don't have to always be trying to make the most money. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's lots of ways to like be, well, not wealthy, but just to have enough money and to gain money. And one of them is just not spending it, you know? (laughs) That actually is a good lead into one of my questions. Like, do you know approximately what your cost of living is per month? And how do you make that work with Paris, which is one of the most expensive cities in the world that a lot of digital nomads are like, oh, off limits, can't go there. London, Paris. And those are some of my favorite cities, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, London is very expensive. Well, you know, I'm not really that great at planning. (laughs) I don't like to, I just end up flying by the seat of my pants. I think I plan like a couple of months in advance. So I sort of go like, okay, well, I know that, you know, I have this much coming in this month, the next month, the next month. So I know I can sort of afford rent for like the next few months. And so I'll sort of like base it off that. But I've actually ended up with an interesting situation in Paris (laughs) where I actually share a room with my, one of my best friends from Australia. So she, so she will live there like some months and then I will live there some months. And so it's like, I'm not actually paying rent there every single month of the year, which is kind of like perfect. And I didn't, I didn't plan it at all. It's like a timeshare room (laughs) because we live with one of our other best friends who owns the apartment. And so we've sort of just, we didn't mean to do it and it just ended up working out. And so that's how I can sort of be here now in Italy for over the summer because she's taking the room over the summer. And I don't know what will happen with all of that after the summer, but that's sort of how it's been for the last 10 months, I think. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, that's great too, because a lot of people don't want to be locked into a lease. And this is one of the biggest problems facing remote workers who want to travel a lot is how do they do that while having a place to live and you know, there's a different strategy for everyone. Yeah. And I think the funny thing is like, I don't think I could have ever like cooked that scheme up myself. (laughs) It was just like, I was living in Paris and finding it a bit expensive and a bit busy and crazy. And then I started wanting to spend a bit more time here in Marque, Italy, which is where I am now in the countryside. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to sort of start spending a bit more time there and see, you know, if I can sublet my room out and see if I can figure it out. And and then this solution just kind of presented itself to me. So it was kind of like the universe had my back. It's like, you can have two homes, like go for it. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. So yeah, tell us about this area that you're in in Italy, because Italy was the first country I went to when I was 17 years old. And it was just life changing. I went from Rome through the northern countryside through Florence or yeah, across uh, Chianti region and 
Florence and Venice and all of those great places, but I have such vivid memories of the kind of central Italian countryside in Tuscany. So what is it like to live there? I mean, this is giving me major eat, pray, love vibes. I know. And it's really embarrassing because actually my favorite countries are, (laughs) without trying to be, they are India, Italy, and Indonesia. (laughs) I didn't mean to do this, but it's just happened. That's okay. Um, but so I'm in Marche, Italy right now, which is to the east of Tuscany, but the same sort of lat is that latitude? I should know that. I'm a yeah, I think. Uh, <laughs> wait, longitude. Longitude is ver- vertical lines. <laughs> so it's it's next to Tuscany, basically. And so yeah, I'm here. I've been coming here for about eight years with my family, and it's a beautiful region. It, it looks to me, it looks a lot like Tuscany, like rolling sort of green hills and tiny little hilltop towns. But Marque is kind of like the undiscovered version of Tuscany, if you ask me. It's not that touristic at all. It's very affordable. Like it feels very authentic. No one really speaks that much English. The food is incredible. And we've got this coastline going down all along the East Coast, which has some really beautiful spots, national parks and like cliffs and really natural, beautiful beaches. And I'm living in a really tiny little town right now of 750 people called Frate Rosa. Um, and it's, wow. it's like right on top of a hill. And I know that when the summer really hits, it's completely surrounded by these fields of sunflowers. So it's like that real cliche That is dream. what I was envisioning, these <laughs> sunflowers. I have a postcard. It's like a panoramic photo of the sunflower fields. And it's just ridiculous. Yeah. So Do you life- speak Italian too, by the way? Un pochino. I speak French and I'm going to actually start doing Italian lessons in, I think I was going to start this in June, but I think I'm actually going to wait and sort of just relax in June and then start in July and sort of do that every weekday from 9.30 till 12.30 in a town that's like about 10 minutes away. I think you're in a great position to do that because you're just totally immersed in real life, small town in Italy. And that was the combination of things that helped me learn Spanish. Yeah. And I think it's very similar. It's similar to French as well. So that will help me. And I've spent a lot of time around the language. So it's not like completely new to me. Yeah. That's what I'll be doing. You just have to focus on one thing and then get it done. Yeah, I definitely get confused between French and Italian though, but it's <laughs> okay. When I first started my company, Poker Refugees, it was 2011 and I was just scrambling to get people to help me because I was so overwhelmed with work and I hired my next door neighbor who happened to be Brazilian and she taught Portuguese lessons in Costa Rica. And so it was really funny because like the week before I launched, I had just signed up to take Portuguese and I had one class and it was so confusing between Spanish and Portuguese that I was like, I can't even do it because it's like too similar. I need to learn like German or Mandarin or something. And then that was my one and only Portuguese class. And then after that, she was like working (laughs) with poker players for us. So it's hard. Actually, this is a question that Walt has in the live chat and it's one that I had for you as well. So you just went to India and now you're in Italy. How do you decide where you're going to go? Because a lot of people have questions about where should they go? Where should they live? 
And of course, like the budget factors, one, like going to Southeast Asia, going to Bali, places that are affordable. But what are some of the other reasons that you go? Do you just kind of follow your instincts? I totally wing it, I think. I think that if you set up your life like this, then it's kind of crazy, like how much choice you have. And and it is a bit overwhelming because even if you're on a budget, you know, there's so many sort of cheap countries that you can go to. So I just sort of ask myself, like, what do I need and what do I want right now? And I sort of go from there. So it's like, okay, well, if I need like peace and quiet and solitude and all of that, like what's the place that's going to give me that rather than being like picking a destination, I sort of think like what I feel like doing or experiencing at the moment and then kind of go from there. But I think like the sort of destinations and opportunities kind of just like cross your path anyway and kind of become obvious. Okay, that's like the good thing. That's what I'm going to do next. Yeah. But I don't really overanalyze it. But I think the only thing is the Wi-Fi consideration. That's the only thing where I get a bit logical, logic based about it. Like, I mean, and I just went to India and that was challenging. (laughs) Yes, there's nothing more frustrating as a remote worker than not being able to get Wi-Fi. And you feel like you could go back to 1994 with like dial up internet and you just want to pull your hair out. Because, you know, people, you can't really trust anyone who says they have Wi-Fi and you sound like an idiot going, like traveling and going on your holiday and being like, yeah, but what's the Wi-Fi like? Because people are like, you're on holidays, you're traveling. It's like, no, I actually need to know what is the Wi-Fi like. I make people send me a screenshot of their speed test before I book their apartment. Yeah, that's a good idea. (laughs) But I have to say, I was really quite nervous about going to India and working from there because the last time I did it about two and a half years ago, it was not good. It was really challenging. There were blackouts. I mean, this was in Kerala, like at the beach. So probably didn't pick the best place, but there were a lot of blackouts and the internet often just didn't work and like forget uploading a video or doing anything on video just wasn't really fast enough. But this time the internet was really good and the sort of 3G and 4G on the phone was incredible. So I was so surprised. I cannot wait until we have 5G everywhere in the world. I mean, in Estonia, I just yesterday published part two of my Estonia vlog. And it's one of the most, if not the most technologically advanced country and society on the planet right now. And they have 4G in the middle of the forest. So like every square foot of the country has 4G signal and you don't even need a cable internet connection. And I mean, that's going to be awesome. And it's right around the corner. Yeah, that's going to be really good for us. And I actually just remembered something good about India too. I was in Goa for a lot of the time. And I actually read an article about the sort of Goa local council or authorities or whatever wanting to, in the future, make Goa a digital nomad destination. So they're wanting to like improve all the internet there and set up a lot of infrastructure and make it kind of like, you know, what's happened in Bali and and bring a lot of nomads there to Goa. Because I know that people like a lot of nomads are sort of like thinking about Goa and asking about it. And I wanted to test it out, but I don't think it's quite there. It doesn't have like a lot. I think it has one co-working space, which is in the capital city, Panaji. It's not at the beach there. So it has a way to go. But yeah, I thought that was interesting that the government sort of saw the opportunity and is hoping to like build something for us. (laughs) Yeah, this is something that I've written about a little bit on my blog. 
the incentives, governmental incentives that used to go to corporations are now going to go to individuals. And we've already seen evidence of this in the United States. We've seen states offering very marketable $10,000 incentive packages to attract remote workers to live in their state. We've seen countries doing it. We've seen like Estonia, the Middle East are creating digital nomad work visas and travel permits or business permits. And also, I think we're going to just continue to see more of that. And it's a really interesting flip-flop of the balance of power. So if you look at countries that are notorious for being tax havens, for example, your Caribbean countries, some African nations, Cyprus, Mediterranean countries that don't have a lot of natural resources, they get a lot of their economics are from basically tourism investment and offshore direct investment. And now I think it will be really interesting to see those same countries offering incentives for individual digital nomads as opposed to just companies or investment firms and things like that, because we are going to have a lot of purchasing power with hundreds of millions of us or a billion of us, as some people say. Yeah, well, and it would be nice to, because it's kind of like when you're going to places and getting visas and things, you're kind of in a gray area and you don't really know where you fit into the visa categories and things. So to be like, okay, I'm definitely on the right visa here. That would be really nice. (laughs) Yeah. Wishful thinking. Okay. So any governmental representatives listening right now, take note. (laughs) How else was India for you because I could tell that you liked it and you were there for a while. I've definitely looked into going to Goa. I haven't made it to India yet, but always the question that we get there is like, is it safe? Is it safe for female solo travelers or solo travelers in general? And how did you feel there? Well, the first time I went, which was two and a half years ago, I went with a friend, another female traveler, and I felt Fine. So I guess I haven't actually solo traveled. So I went with her last time and then went by myself to a a retreat, like a Ayurvedic health retreat. And I felt fine. I felt really safe. You know, we caught the train, we got buses, we got cars, we stayed in hostels and not hostels, sort of guest houses and things. And we didn't really have any problems. I guess people kind of look at you because you're not Indian and that's about it. You get a lot of attention, but it's not, I don't know, it doesn't feel bad or dangerous or anything. And then then this last time that I went, I went by myself again to um, an Ayurvedic health retreat and then my boyfriend came and met me. So I, I got to do it with him. And yeah, same thing. It was just like, you know, people wanting to get pictures with you, people sort of looking at you a bit, but nothing beyond that, you know, (laughs) I think, and everyone was really friendly with us. You know, we got the train a few times as well on this most recent trip and, and we didn't have like seats. And so we had to sort of stand up in the carriage, like, you know, the bit between the, the seated bits and everyone was really sweet and nice to us. And yeah, it was fine. So I don't know. I think I was really nervous before the first time I went to India, I remember, because for some reason, yeah, it does seem like very exotic, very foreign. And and so, and then people do tell you that you have to be careful and be safe and everything. But um, yeah, I found it fine. (laughs) 
And do you have a boyfriend now that you travel with? Yeah, and he's actually from this town in rural Italy where I am right now. And for, for the last, like, I guess six years, I was doing it on my own. And then now I've met him and he can travel a lot as well because he's a photographer. So he has a lot of time off between shoots. And so, yeah, that was our first kind of real trip together. And it was like, oh, yeah, this is nice doing this with someone else and doing it with a man, you know? <laughs> God, yeah. What is that like? No, I'm just kidding. I've done that before too, but it's been a while. It's different. I have to say it was more relaxing. <laughs> it is nice to have a partner to travel with. And I've traveled with a lot of girlfriends, a lot of groups, and a couple significant others over the years. And it's, yeah, it's a totally different experience, but it is different. I think, yeah, I'm there's open pros to and both, cons. both ways. I think there's definitely pros and cons because, well, it's just nice to have somebody to help you do everything. It's more fun. It's more relaxed when you don't have to just rely on yourself and you don't have to just make all the decisions yourself and you don't have to, it's like, okay, if, if I've forgotten anything, there's no one else to remember it. It's like just me. And so that can yeah. kind of be a bit, gives me anxiety a bit. <laughs> so like, it was more relaxing and fun. But I have to say, like, when you travel on your own, you obviously meet more people because you have to. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, one of the things that is kind of weird that you just made me think of about traveling with significant other or anyone really, but is having somebody to like watch your suitcases and stuff, like being able to get up from a table in a cafe or an airport and not have to bring all of your stuff with you so it doesn't get stolen or whatever. It's just nice. Like you can just go to the bathroom and somebody's there and yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Or yeah. Like taking your laptop to a cafe to do a bit of work and then being like, all right, I can just go up and go to the bathroom here and leave my stuff. Like, <laughs> Which unless you're in Sweden, which yeah, in Sweden, I saw everybody leaving their laptops everywhere and like their kids and strollers just like going to do something and coming back later. Apparently that's okay. You don't do that in Costa Rica where I lived and you probably don't do that in India. You cannot do that in Paris, I'll tell you that. Or Paris. So let's see, we'll go to the chat in a minute and get some uh, live questions. Let me see if there's anything else here that I wanted to ask for sure. Well, how about something that we pick. I have so many questions for you, but we have limited time. So how, what's that? Okay. Sorry to your boyfriend in advance. <laughs> so you have a travel blog. You have all of these stories. Can you tell us like one like short story of something that really stands out from your travels in the past six years or something that you learned while traveling that you didn't know when you were still living back at home in Australia? Well, I think something I didn't know when I was back in Australia was, I don't know how much I could put myself out there. I think one of the most transformative things that I've done is I went to live in Ubud, Bali on my own. Maybe that was like five years ago that I did that. But I think before that, I'd always kind of gone to stay in a city or stay with somebody where I kind of knew somebody. So I had like an anchor or something to grab onto. And I was like, you know, I just have this feeling I want to go to Ubud and Bali and live there for a while. So I rented a room in this house in the rice paddies outside Ubud. And I just went there and I didn't know anybody. 
and I was living with like three other people and I was like kind of scared to do it. I don't know why I think I'm actually kind of a shy sort of introverted person. So that was like a big thing for me. And I went and did that and I ended up living with three other people who were digital nomads and they were like working from their laptops and they had all these other digital nomad friends and there was this co-working space in the town. And that was like the first time that I was like, wow, like other people are doing this and they're all really similar to me and they're really interesting and I love hanging out with these people. And I just had like the best couple of months of my life, really. Like I just met all these amazing people. I had, I got all this confidence in what I was doing, that it was like, it was going to work out, that it wasn't that weird. (laughs) I wasn't so crazy to be doing this. And also just sort of learning how much I could put myself out there and how much I could, yeah, be extroverted and challenge myself and grow and change and all of this. So that was incredible. I love that. I mean, what you were saying earlier as well, when you decide what kind of destination you want to go to and you think about what do you need, like what are you feeling, what is appealing to you, what's resonating with you, and that just must be so cathartic to, well, I've been able to experience that as well, but it's just like a personal transformative experience when you're able to have that kind of freedom and then be able to narrow down. Like I feel like going to Ubud by myself or something like that and then do it. It's like without anyone saying in a textbook or in class, like you could do this, you know, you could go by yourself to Bali, which is a place I went to, I think about 10 years ago for the first time. And I remember asking all my friends, like, has anyone been there? I really want to go here. But, you know, and it was the best, probably actually last week, I was telling somebody that to this day, that was the best month of my life that I spent in Bali in like 2009, because you just feel so free. And that's what this lifestyle can bring when you put yourself out there and you realize it wasn't that bad. It's like the obstacle is the way sort of mindset and then just be able to do that throughout life and kind of go with the ebb and the flow of life without having it structured and like work for 40 or 50 years and then take some time off. It's like you can just see where it goes. Yeah, you can kind of give yourself what you need. And the cool thing about moving around is like, I mean, I've learned that there is no perfect place. I'm pretty sure of that now. There's just no way that. There's no one place. And I even saw a location astrologer, right? On I had a Skype session, right? To be like, you know, where should I base myself? I really want to like stop traveling so much and have at least like, you know, some sort of roots. And like, I actually think that at the end, we were both just like, well, look, you could live in about these five places and they'd all be great because They all just give you something different. Like there's no one place that is like the perfect place for you. It's like, well, what do you want right now? What do you need? What kind of person do you want to be? What what would help you right now? And the funny thing about being a digital nomad is like, well, you can kind of actually just have all of it, but not all at the same time. (laughs) You can be like, I need to be like this quiet person right now, or I need to like have some social interaction, or I need to have some inspiration from other people doing what I do. And you can kind of have the benefit of all these different places and all these different energies, but um, just not all in one place and not all at one time. (laughs) That is a great metaphor for multitasking, which I was reading the other day that even computers don't multitask. They can only process one thing at a time. And I'm not a tech person. So that to me was like, oh, interesting. I didn't think of it that way. 
But as people, like during the day, we can only do one thing at once, but this can be extrapolated into the bigger picture of life. Like we can have it all, but not all at the same time. So I like that. (laughs) As you're traveling, I'm guessing that you travel light, probably lighter than me. What are some of your must-have things that you bring with you? Well, I do have to tell you that I don't travel light because I travel for such a long time usually that I have to take like six months worth of stuff with me, like from Australia or whatever. But I've recently just started traveling light, seeing as I can leave stuff in Italy and I can leave stuff in France. So I can, like when I went to India, I just took like a 40 liter backpack, which I was very proud of. And it felt so good. So much better than uh, it is, the, that big, is the best. I call my, my other suitcase I've been traveling with for like, you know, six years, the monster. It's huge. <laughs> the monster. Well, actually, I did kind of the same. We're living parallel lives, Katie, because I had this plan that I was going to leave three weeks ago to go to Scotland to go to a wedding. And then I was like, well, I'll be over there. So maybe I'll go to Ireland or something else and trying to like fill in the blanks. And even though sometimes things make sense on paper or logically, but then when you really sit with yourself, you're like, well, what do I want to do? What do I feel like doing? And I was like, I feel like just staying at home. So I decided to just stay in Florida and I feel so much better for having done that. And one of the things that I'm really looking forward to now is going to Europe for a few weeks, but not for like the next six months. Like, I think I'm just going to come back and forth a couple of times and I can just bring a smaller backpack and not my gigantic suitcase. And that is a literal weight lifted off your shoulders. It is so nice because like... I mean, if you have a big suitcase, you have to train, like you have to be physically fit to be able to take it with you everywhere. And every like time you have to move, it's like a stress to be like, okay, well, can I take that on the train? Can I, you know, how am I going to get from my place to the airport? Am I going to take the train? I'm going to have to take a cab. Like it's so much nicer traveling light, but, but you can't really, if you're going for six months, like you have to take a lot of stuff. Yeah. My suitcase looks like a 3D puzzle inside. It has like so many pieces. It's like origami luggage blocks or packing blocks or cubes, whatever they're called. That's saved my life. (laughs) Well, when I get to Paris and I interview Rolf Potts, I'm going to ask him about how he traveled around the world for like six weeks with no backpack and no luggage, because I don't know how that's possible but I'm going to find out. Yeah. I mean, I've met people who just travel with a small backpack, like, you know, a small day pack. And I thought that was impressive, but nothing. Nothing. Just a passport and a credit card or whatever. Okay. All right. I'm going to watch that one. I'll find out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Let's hop over to the chat. Covered Walt's question. Tech Lords is asking if rental accommodations are expensive in Italy. I will say it depends on the city. It depends on the city for sure. And it depends on the season. So I think during the summer season, it's a little bit more expensive. But I found a place for 500 euros a month in this little town. and But I think that's actually quite expensive for this town. And the off-season price is 300, I know. So that maybe gives you a bit of an idea, but yeah, I think you can find stuff on Airbnb or maybe even sort of like just going to the town and sort of asking around if there's accommodation around as well, because I think in a lot of these small towns, 
in Italy there is some sort of houses and apartments sitting there unrented that maybe you could figure something out. But Airbnb has some stuff for sure. Yeah, those are a couple of the things I talked about at Nomad Summit and my Nomad Relocation Plan is go places during the off season or the shoulder season and you can just get such cheaper prices. Like even in Bulgaria this year, I was there last summer. My rent was 150 euro per month. And during the high season, it was like 350 or 250 to 500, depending on where I was staying, which is like pretty laughable when you think about it's like splitting hairs because like other places I'll have to spend that much money per night or something, but it's all relative. So I'm like, oh, I don't want to pay another hundred euro per month for this place. Because you know what the price is in the low season. But I stayed in Positano one summer and it was one of the most expensive places I've ever been in my life, which is on the Amalfi Coast in Italy. So avoid Amalfi during high season, during the summer. It's hot, it's crowded, and it's expensive. But on the contrary, if you go to Rome for three months during like a shoulder season, a lot of the Airbnbs are available. The weather is nicer. It's not as crowded and hot and it's just cheaper. And I mean, we were, I was looking, well, actually with my mom over like Christmas and like around that winter time around here in Marque and Tuscany um, and on Airbnbs. And we were actually sort of able to negotiate much lower prices because there just seemed, we could just tell like everything was available. So we were able to sort of say to people, hey, I know that you're not renting this and that nobody's here at the moment. So like, you know, what about this price? So we were actually like proposing cheaper prices and it kind of, you know, it was win-win because, you know, they weren't going to rent it if they weren't renting it to us. So they could kind of give us a better deal. So I thought that was really interesting. Actually, Johnny FD just told me that he did that in Ukraine. He saw that this one Airbnb was completely open. It had no bookings on the calendar. And he's like, I'll give you half price. And they were like, take it. We're done. Good negotiating tactics. Somebody was asking if this was Walt, do you book accommodations first or flight first? Accommodation. Because I think, well, it depends. If I'm going further, maybe I would book the flight first because that's more anxiety inducing for me if I'm going further. If I'm only going one to three hour flight or something, I'd be more concerned with getting the better accommodation deal, I think. So I'd book that first. Yeah, especially when it comes to Southeast Asia or Europe or a region where you can get around really affordably on flights last minute, which you can't really do in the US or long haul flights. But if you like I always search for flights, I'll put in like the whole region because I don't care if I fly into Oslo or Moscow or wherever, as long as I can get on the continent, then I can plane, train or bus to where I need to go to my amazing accommodation. Yeah, I might even look all oh, the flight out of like London or Milan or something like it. That's a lot cheaper, you know, like to, when I was going back to and from India, that's what I was like. Well, Paris might not be the cheapest place to fly from to India. So, yeah, I'm kind of like you are kind of stay flexible on the flights. I'm happy to, you know, you can get those cheap short haul deals on flights nowadays, but maybe not in the US. Is totally. what I'm saying. I haven't done that much travel in the US lately. Yeah. Like the minimum flight here is usually $200 round trip, but it could easily be like four, five, 600 bucks, depending on how far across the country you're going, which granted it is a big country 
geographically, but they're still price gouging because of all the airline consolidation in the US. So that's annoying. But yeah, I, I do agree. And also Larry in the chat agrees that you can get cheaper accommodations like outside of major cities. Like he's talking about going to small towns in Belgium outside of Brussels, where you're still maybe 20, 30 minutes from the city, but you can get into like more of a slow travel flow. And this trip that I'm doing to Paris, I wanted to be in the center because I'm going to class every day at one of the universities. But if I was going there longer term, I would totally be in an apartment, like a really nice apartment or house, maybe a 30 minute train outside of the city because you just get so much more for your money. And none of the tourists want to be like 30 or 40 minutes from the attractions. Yeah. And you get something special, like even on that train ride or wherever you're staying, you might, you know, you get to see a slice of real life. So you have that as well. That's what we Yeah. <laughs> Are you taking French lessons in Paris? No, I'm taking writing, travel memoir writing class. Oh, I want to do that. Yeah. With Rolf Potts, who wrote that book, Vagabonding, which I was laughing about yesterday because I recorded a podcast the Maverick show with Matt Bowles. And he's a big fan of Rolf Potts. And I was like, you know, I never even read the book Vagabonding because I already was on board with that concept. <laughs> like I was already a vagabond when it came out and I'd never, I didn't know about it because I didn't have internet and stuff where I was. And I didn't hear about it until later when I read the four hour work week and Tim Ferriss talks about vagabonding. So I was like, oh yeah, like, I'm on board with that. So anyway, it's the guy who wrote that book, which is super famous. And apparently he does writing classes every summer. So if you're interested, I'll post the link in the show notes and I'll send it to you. That sounds amazing. <laughs> okay, let's see. TechLord says that in the next decade, everyone on the planet will have access to free Wi-Fi and access to the internet will be considered a basic human right. That would be cool. It's really cool. Oh my God, the future is so weird. I can't think about it too much. <laughs> like it gets really weird. They're talking about Armageddon in the chat and financial Armageddon. We need to <laughs> everybody calm down. <laughs> I don't I don't Larry have anything. Said, I don't have any intel on that. Sorry, I don't have anything to add. Larry says the perfect digital nomad job is being a Skype astrologer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to like knock it because I have had readings where it included like an analysis of the ley lines of the globe and where I should position myself That's as a digital nomad. It was, I think in Bali is where you can meet a lot of these cool healer people. Okay, let's see. We have Kleber Barros here. And he says that for those who come to Rio de Janeiro, they think it's cheap, but the local currency is below the dollar. So, okay. Yeah. I have to say that I have tried really hard to be sensitive about when I talk about countries that are cheap, like Argentina, for example, because I know that it's cheaper for me because I am lucky to earn money in dollars and euro. So I apologize to Kleber because it's really unfair for locals who earn in a local currency and they get like, bashed with inflation. But it also works the other way around because in Iceland, for example, the locals earn in the local currency and it's so expensive if you come with dollars or another currency. So 
it can kind of work both ways. Actually, when I lived in Australia, we must have been there at the same time, Katie. We've just been like living parallel lives this whole time because I went to Griffith University for one semester and their main unis in Brisbane, obviously, but I was on the Gold Coast. And that was when the US dollar was really strong and my rent was just dirt cheap. It was like two for one to the Australian dollar. But then the next time I went, it was the other way around. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it is a problem, but I don't know how to solve it. But I do know, like, for example, in, in Ubud, in Bali, like the workspace that I went to, they mostly employed local Balinese people at the workspace. And there was like a special rate for locals to go to this workspace. So I thought like that was something at least that, you know, it's not just like these people from another country coming in and bulldozing everything, but kind of trying to integrate a bit and help the local people and be a part of the community and contribute and everything. So I always thought that was like a good thing, a really positive thing. Yeah, I think that people in general have really good intentions and that the world will be a better place if everybody had the opportunity to travel and work in other countries and immerse themselves in a culture for at least a month or so, which is a strategy that you've done. And I'm looking forward to that time when travel is so affordable and remote work is so ubiquitous that truly everyone takes advantage of it and embraces it. I think it will resolve a lot of the problems of the world naturally and organically. Some of the things that are maybe beyond the superpowers of Katie and I <laughs> to fix, aka financial Armageddon and like world poverty. But yeah, everybody can do something. And as long as we're just all individuals having compassion for other people and being open to other ways of life, then I think that's what is really important and going to help in our cloud nation and everyone moving forward. See if there's any other questions. Are you into cryptocurrency, Katie? Is that your thing? No. <laughs> I have a good friend who's really into it and he came to visit me and he didn't have the internet. And so every five seconds he was like, can I hotspot your phone? Because I need to check like where my crypto is, like, you know, what it's doing. And that was my only experience. <laughs> he was very intensely into it. <laughs> it's funny. I could totally see that after having worked with so many poker players, like knowing what everybody's crypto balances are. Okay. So, oh yes. Also Kleber makes a good point that people who are earning local currency in their home countries, they can kind of take advantage of like a geo arbitrage sort of thing where they're working remotely in their home country, but they're setting up online businesses where they can earn in a different currency. And now we have online banks like TransferWise, for example, and people can hold bank accounts online that they don't have to physically go to the branch to open them. And they can have different currencies and send and receive money from all different currencies around the world. So that's something that isn't spoken about very much as a benefit of remote work. But not only is it helping people with regular nine to five jobs be able to quit those and work remotely, but also people who might want to maintain a nine to five job can start other side projects and earn money in other currencies. And it really is beneficial to people who have disabilities or geographical restrictions where they can't travel, but they still want to work online from home 
or they have trouble with jobs that are physically present. Yeah, that is cool. Have you met any other digital nomad friends in your travels, Katie? A lot. (laughs) A lot. I met a lot of them in Bali, though, really. I met a really cool Canadian girl there in Bali, and she's sort of in communications and writing and photography as well. And she was sort of like working every summer in Montreal, Canada, where she's from, and then coming over to Asia for the wintertime there and sort of just having a job in the summertime in Canada and then not having a job and doing a little bit of remote work in Asia when she came over in the winter. And she actually, we went on a little trip to this island, Gilead, when we were there and she ended up meeting, meeting her boyfriend at that time and she has now moved there and she lives there and runs a little hotel with him there now. So Wow. You never know what's gonna happen. That sounds very eat, pray, love-ish. So she's very inspirational. Like, wow, okay, anything can happen. <laughs> well, I'll, maybe I should have her on the podcast. <laughs> Let me uh share. If people want to so I want to say thank you to everybody who is hanging out here live and sending us your questions. And for anyone who's catching the replay, come on over or come next week and catch us live. But Katie, where can people follow you if they want to geek out on your posts and your curated and beautiful photos or just follow some of your travels? They can follow me on Instagram. My handle is the traveling light with two L's in traveling because I'm Australian, not American. (laughs) Or you can find me on my blog as well, which is www.thetravelinglight.com with two L's again. And I'm on Facebook too, but those two places are the best places to find me. Yeah. I love your pictures. So cool. And I will just read something as a closing before we sign off. This is Don't be embarrassed. I'm going to read off your blog. It says, what is the traveling light? It hides in places, in people doing strange and new things, in places that run in the family, right next to goosebumps, down laneways, in forgotten museums, behind closed doors, up winding staircases, in the quiet corner amongst the throngs, inside secret gardens, at hidden beaches, on top of the rooftops, looking out over everything. And if you can find the light, you can take it with you wherever you go. I love that. So thank you so much, Katie, for joining us from your little cozy abode in Italy. Thank you. I hope I can come and cross paths with you somewhere soon. Come and visit me. I'm sure it will happen eventually. Come and visit me. I'm here for four months, okay? (laughs) Well, I don't have a ticket back to the U.S. yet. I leave on June 15th. So maybe I can go there after Paris. I'll do one week in Paris and one week in Vilnius. So maybe I'll just swing by. I have a spare room. You can stay. Yay. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much. And bye, everybody. In live chat, we will see you again next week for another episode of Badass Digital Nomads. And if you want to check out the podcast today on iTunes, actually, last week we had Anthony Knowles, who is a travel filmmaker, and he is self-made as a teenager, taught himself how to make travel videos. And now he is traveling around the world with one of the biggest travel bloggers and online entrepreneurs out there, Passport Heavy. 
And today we have Freya Casey, who was an opera singer and theater performer turned quit her job and became a YouTuber teaching voice lessons. And now she just lives in Germany, works from home, raises her daughter and travels whenever she wants. And I met her in London and I had to interview her because she was so cool. So yeah, we're here on YouTube. We're on iTunes. We're on Spotify. We're on Google Play. We're everywhere. So hope to see you guys again soon. And for sure, follow Katie and I on Instagram. If I have to to type link in bio one more time. I think I'm going to kill myself. I need to get to enough followers that people can swipe up to see my videos and not go to the freaking bio. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. We'll leave it at that. Ciao for now. Bye. Thanks for listening. Remember to leave a review and share this episode with someone in your network. And if you want more tips and advice on working remotely, make sure to sign up for my insider list at travelingwithkristen.com slash subscribe, where you can find links to download free resources like my digital nomad starter guide. Of course, also subscribe to youtube.com slash digital nomad so you don't miss any of our weekly videos, digital nomad news, or live streams. See you there.